Come up, Pastor Mike, this morning. It's good to be with you this morning. We had a, a tremendous trip to Colombia. We were uh, in the city of Armenia, which is where the Christian Missionary Alliance began mission work there not over 90 years ago and started the church. And we were working with the National Church. We trained and developed uh, leadership of about uh, 25-plus pastors. And we had uh, two conferences, Lord Teach Us to Pray, a College of Prayer module, and then we also had an emotional healing module together. We saw physical healings, incredible physical healings. We saw marriages and uh, individuals set free, and uh, just an amazing time together. God is doing an incredible work in Colombia, and we got to be a part of that. Our team did a great job. Um, we watched, I watched a live stream, and now I know who pays attention during service. I almost texted a few of you when your heads went down. Wake up! And I know who laughs the loudest during services. <laughs> It was, uh, thank you for praying for us, and uh, it was a very exciting time together. We have a special uh, announcement and a presentation today. Um, we have a summer intern who will be with us, Andrew Edward. Andrew is here somewhere, I think. Andrew, all the way in the back. Good place for an intern. <laughs> Andrew. Uh, Andrew is a graduate of Nyack College in Bible and Theology, and he is in his senior year at Princeton Theological Seminary. And he is working with us all summer. Uh, and we have put him to the task of doing a New Testament survey, Bible study class that will take place beginning June 11th here at the church. I believe it starts at 6 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. Part of really growing in your faith, especially as you're, you're starting out, is to get a really good understanding and grip on the New Testament. And so Andrew is going to take this summer just to introduce and familiarize any who want to, to be a part of a New Testament survey course. If you're interested in that, please sign up at the info desk. There's also a brochure that explains the different segments of the New Testament that he'll be studying and that we'll be teaching on during Sunday nights. Um, we are doing a study ourselves. Uh, on Sunday mornings in the uh, letter to the Hebrews. And we've been, we've been trying to answer this, uh, this very real question that continues even up to this day. It's, it's this question, if, you know, if God loves us so much, why is life so difficult? Or another way of putting it is, why is it so challenging to be a Christian? Why is it so hard to be a Christian? As we come to this particular section of Hebrews, we're really getting to the, to the core of the matter, to the heart of the matter. He's been saying for, for eight chapters that he's not going to give you answers to why your circumstances are difficult. He's not going to explain to you why you have to go through what you have to go through. But he is going to do this, and he has done it for eight chapters. He said, will you not fix your eyes on Jesus, your champion, and the author of your faith as you go through these challenges. And then in chapter 9 and 10, he switches just a little bit. And he makes 
a point which is, I think, really essential for us to understand. That the, that the whole of, of your faith and, and the whole of what God has done in Jesus Christ is so that you will draw near to him. That the, the, the essential aspect of the Christian life or the essential aspect of Christian faith is not how well you behave or how well you keep the rules or, you know, if you believe exactly the right things, but, but rather the essential aspect of the Christian faith is are you drawing near to God? Do you sense a nearness? Do you sense an intimacy? Do you know how to be near? Because there are some things, the more you realize you have very little control over your circumstances. You have very limited control over people. And the only thing you always have control over is will you draw near to God in your times of trouble. So I want you to read with me from Hebrews chapter 10. I like it when we as a church read out loud together. This is verses 11 through 18. And in this, and we'll also be looking in a minute at chapter 9, but in this we see the whole theme of sacrifice, of what it takes to draw near to God. So let's read together. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now, a parallel passage to that takes place in chapter 9. I want to read it to you. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not with hands, that is, not of this creation, this is the tabernacle, the tent of the tabernacle, tent of meeting, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For at the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled person with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? It was the purpose of Jesus to save you through sacrifice. It was the purpose of Jesus to save you through his own blood. This is a powerful thing in verse 22. It explains that blood is essential for for purification. Blood is essential for cleansing. Indeed, it says, 
Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This idea of blood is somewhat problematic in our day. People don't like to think of a sacrifice, of the violence that is done uh, in terms of the death or the substitution of, uh, of another in such a violent way as the cross, the shedding of blood. Matter of fact, most of us, many of us are squeamish about blood. I, I was always very squeamish about blood. I used to, if I ever had blood drawn, I, I couldn't lift anything for weeks, especially, <laughs> especially a dish to put in the dishwasher or any of those kind of things, you know. And, and I'd go, oh, honey, it still hurts, you know. And, <laughs> and when I had malaria, um, Every, every morning about 3 a.m., 3 to 4 a.m., this woman would come in and draw my blood. First thing that happened in early parts of my I'm sure her name was Nurse Dracula, but, uh, <laughs> but every single morning she was, taking my, she was taking my blood. And after a while, you just go, okay, you're going to take it. It's all right. So kind of get over it. But the idea here is almost sounds unsophisticated or primitive, even vulgar in some ways, that... In order for you to draw near to God, there has to be blood. But when you, you think about a number of things about how God set up the whole system of sacrifices in the Old Testament, it was incredibly elaborate. Even the, the original tent, and it was, it was just a portable, it was a portable place of worship. It was a, a place that was set up for the people to know that the presence manifest of God was in the midst of the camp as they moved from Egypt to the promised land. And it was set up in these, these two compartments. And, and one was the holy place. And in the holy place, only those who were, who were real priests, those who were the line of Levi, could, could minister. But even before they could minister on behalf of the people, Every day they had to make sacrifices for themselves because they were just as flawed as the people they were making sacrifices for. And so they're continually offering up these animals and, and these blood sacrifices for the sins of the people. And this went on day after day after day. And then to, to show, in, in, in many ways, the depth of the problem of guilt and the depth of the problem of shame, the high priest himself would enter into not the, just the holy place, but into that, that very special and sacred compartment, the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And there he would find the, the Ark of the Covenant, and on the Ark of the Covenant there was this gold, this golden seat that was called the mercy seat. And only once a year would he enter. And, and before he ever entered, this high priest would have to make sacrifice for his own sins. And he would have to go through ritual bathing. And then he would have to put on a, a, a white robe, a gleaming white robe to prove and to show that he was undefiled. And it was such serious business because the holiness of God was in the midst of this holy place. And if things were done incorrectly, if they were done wrong, there was a certain death. That would come to this high priest. And so everything was done to, to cleanse and to get free of defilement. And then as he went in, he followed the rules exactly to the letter. On the mercy seat was sprinkled the blood of, of a sacrifice bull. Sprinkled all around on the ground. Sprinkled on the seat itself to atone 
for the sins of the people for that year. There was also a custom where two goats were, were uh, picked. And one goat would be given to the Lord, and that goat would be sacrificed, and the blood of the goat would be mixed with the blood of the bull. But the other goat, the priest would speak over that goat all the sins of the people. And they would wrap the sins with the goat, and they would take the goat, and they would send him outside the walls of the city. They would send him out of the camp. And that goat is what was called the scapegoat. It's where we get our idea that someone is your scapegoat. Because the sins that were committed were placed on the goat and the goat was sent out. It was a picture, all these things were a picture of Jesus, but there's no, probably no greater picture in many ways than that, than that goat who's sent outside the city, whose very uh, death was a scapegoat death because your sin was nailed to him. Your offenses were nailed to him. His blood flowed so that your blood would not have to flow. And so it was a very elaborate thing. And, and the reason wasn't because it was pretty, because it wasn't pretty. It was smelly. It was messy. It was gross, vulgar in so many ways. But the reason was that you and I would understand the problem we have of guilt and shame is a deep and unfixable one. That we cannot, and the writer here in Hebrews makes it clear, the blood of the bull and the blood of the goats does not atone for our sins. It's not goats who sinned against God. It's not bulls who sinned against God. It's humans. It's people. And so the blood has some very significant meaning, particularly in a negative way. Um, anytime any of you suddenly see blood gushing from your body, you're going to go, oh, the picture of health. As soon as you see blood gushing out your body, you're immediately trying to figure out, okay, what are my insurance benefits at this moment? Do I go to urgent care? Do I need to go to the emergency room? And how much is my copayment for this? Because you know something's broken. Something's wrong. Something has to be healed. Something has to be repaired. When you see or experience blood in a way that you shouldn't see or experience it, you know something's wrong. Another aspect that's blood on your hands, they're not saying, oh, isn't that lovely? They're saying, you have done something wrong. Uh, all of us who had to take uh, English lit and we had to read Shakespeare will remember Lady Macbeth who keeps you know, washing her hands because of the guilt, because of the shame that she feels. And she keeps saying, you know, out damn spot. And for all of us in high school, it was just fun to say damn spot, you know, and just be able to curse like that for free. And, uh, and Shakespeare did it. We could do it. So, but the idea was no matter how much she washed, no matter how much she tried to get the guilt out, she could not do so. So there's this aspect where blood stains. And so the idea of stain is that, that even though an event or an action or something you've done might be past, the blood or the guilt or the shame of it sticks to you. Blood stains. Um, first time I ever went to Colombia, 20 years ago, the drug cartel was coming down. And the city was in chaos. They were, they were arresting the top leaders of, of the, the narco-traficantes and trying to destroy the drug traffic. And uh, I was taken to a church. And... Uh, in this church, the pastor had spoken 
harshly and, and prophetically against the drug traffic in Kali. And as he was exiting the church, he had been assassinated right on the steps, right on the cement. And even as I looked, I could see the stains of the blood still there. Blood stains. It remains. It stays. See, what's wrong with us and what's wrong with our lives on this earth is actually God is saying through, for, through even the blood, he's saying it's very, very serious. It's unfixable. And all of us are a part of this brokenness. I was doing this wonderful wedding. One of our, our young women who grew up in the church here, Julia Chen, was married yesterday to Phil Lambert. And you look, and, and it, you know, when people get married, they're perfect. I mean, they have their best suit they'll probably ever have, the most beautiful dress, flawless makeup, and yet no one marries a perfect person. I mean, as beautiful as we may look, as flawless as we may look on our perfect day, we are not perfect people. And it's so, it's so fascinating. There's only one perfect church in the world, and it's in Atlanta, Georgia, and it's called the Perfect Church. <laughs> I've always wondered what the membership requirements were there, you know. But the idea, you know, as soon as you come into that church, it wouldn't be perfect anymore. And what happens is that we often forget or we don't realize we're the problem. We're the mess. You know, we can dress ourselves up. We can become religious. We can do psychology. We can do all kinds of things. But blood stains. And it does not come out even with washing. You need something more because the problem that you and I have is much deeper than we realize. See, there's a shame that is incredibly hard to get rid of. You know, trying, really, shame is basically trying to deal with your own conscience. In verse 14, it says, uh, the writer says, all those animal sacrifices, though they were done faithfully, though they were done in a very legalistic manner, not a single one of them ever gave peace in the conscience. And he goes after the conscience in this. He very much is saying that in order to draw near to God, in order to be close to the holy and perfect and beautiful and glorious God, you have to have a clear conscience. A clear conscience is the only thing that will allow you to draw near. Now, a conscience can be described as that part of you that examines yourself and makes a decision about how fit you are to draw near to somebody. Okay, there's this thing inside of you, whether you know it or not. You might have dulled it. You might have seared it. But, but inside of you, there's this thing that's evaluating you. Am I fit to be near this person? I, I find it highly offensive that many people say to me, your wife is so beautiful. How in the world did she actually marry you? Now, I'm willing to examine myself. I'm not always willing for you to examine me in that same manner and decide I'm not fit to draw near to Lisa. <laughs> but you hear it all the time. She's too young for him, you know, somebody will say, or he's too old for her. Do you understand what they're saying? That person is not fit to draw near. Okay. That person's a liar. They're not fit to be your friend. That person is unfaithful. They're not fit to be an intimate uh, relationship with you. That person. So all of us have not only 
a conscience that self-examines, but we have a default setting where we're always looking at other people and saying, well, they're not really attractive enough to be with that person. In superficial ways and in deep ways, there's this sense of conscience. And a bad conscience, basically, is where you realize that there's a fear inside of you, a fear that somebody's going to discover that you really aren't fit, that you really are a fraud, that you're not who you present yourself to be. You're not who you present yourself to be for the presence of God, and you're not who you present yourself to be for others. Um, I've had many friends and people over the years. I've been a pastor for 34 years, and I've had many friends and congregation, congregational members who've gone through divorce. And I've never seen anything more psychologically damaging or painful than going through divorce. And a lot of times what they do is they slough it off or they push it away and just try to get on with, you know, they're relieved they're no longer in the marriage, but they, they, they haven't processed the grief that a brokenness in marriage takes place. You see, the reason it's so powerful is nobody stands up to get married and says, you know, I don't take you. They, they say, I take you for better, for worse. I take you in sickness and in health. I take you as you are, and I believe in you. And so marriage is basically the most exposed, vulnerable place that any of us can be. But it hits at this very point of conscience where it says, I've shown you who I am, and you've rejected me. I've shown you my weaknesses, and you don't accept me. You don't find me fit to draw near. It's one of the most scary things in human existence to believe somehow that someone's going to figure out what a fraud we are. This is why, friends, this passage, these passages are so beautiful. Because what it's saying here is God knows you all the way to the bottom. There's not a secret that you have. There's not a, a weakness you have. There's not a there's not a sin that you're drawn to that he doesn't already know about. And what he did, what he continues to do, is to make you fit to draw near. Not on the basis of your worthiness, but on the basis of his worthiness. You may hear for the rest of your life Satan say to you, you're not worthy to be a Christian. You should laugh at that. And you should say, you are so right. But Jesus is. Oh, you should be ashamed of yourself. And you said, you're so right. But Jesus took my shame. And you began to realize it's really not about you. It's about how fit is your Savior. See, if it's about how fit you are, you'll never get to draw near. This is why religion doesn't work. This is why trying to, in a way, get a formula to control God through whatever sacraments you're taking or whatever obedience you're trying to do or whatever ways in which you're even trying to be countercultural or whatever it is. None of those things are techniques that get rid of guilt or get rid of shame. The only thing that makes you fit is that someone else substituted for you. Now, the tabernacle, as powerful an image as it was, as clearly as it showed that we need something powerful to take away our guilt and shame. The tabernacle couldn't do that. People left with consciences just, consciences just as damaged as before. Well, we live in a day in which there, people don't even like to talk about sacrifice. 
As a matter of fact, we live in a day in which the highest cultural value is pleasure. So sacrifice is actually in the way of the virtue of pleasure. Even some of us, you're, you may not realize this, but you're continually being bombarded with the virtue of pleasing yourself, satisfying yourself, uh, fulfilling yourself. Even parents, I hear Christian parents who've been sucked into the lie. And when I say to them, what, you know, what are your dreams or your plans for your children? They'll go, I just want them to be happy. And then I just smack them upside the head <laughs> in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, and say, will you come back to reality? What in the world does that even mean? Does that mean they don't have to go to school? Because I know most kids would be a lot happier if they didn't have to go to school. Does that mean they get to play video games all the time? Does that mean they get to have dessert before they have dinner? I mean, what in the world does even I just want them to be happy? You're not fit to be a parent. Some of you are left the room right now. That is, a, it is an inane statement and impossible even to begin to realize. Do you understand that your child or you, you live with a level of guilt. You live with a level of shame. And if all you're doing is trying to distract, then you've never taken, away, you've never taken care of the real issue of why you're not happy. So even in this modern age, there are people starting to wake up. There's an author that said this, we find ourselves sinful, but not guilty. We've gotten rid of the idea of guilt, but we can't get rid of the shame. Have you ever noticed? Nothing is evil in our day. Nothing is right. Nothing is wrong. You're only wrong if you think something's right. So the idea there is, if I can just get rid of the pressures that make me feel guilty then I'll be fine. But what this author says, this is a secular author, what he says is, I've gotten rid of all the pressures of guilt. I got rid of the church. I got rid of religion. I got rid of morality. But I still feel sinful. One writer that I like is a, a man by the name of Andrew Del, uh, Del Banco, a sociologist at Columbia University, not a Christian. But he writes about this kind of loss of guilt and he refers to a, a story by the author Walker Percy. And in this story, a psychoanalyst who says the highest thing is, is to, is to you know, live in the sense of pleasure and self-satisfaction and all of this stuff is, is having a client who's racked with fear and has a lot of negative emotion. And the client has committed adultery in his marriage. And the client begins to tell this psychologist, the analyst, he says, I'm really worried because, because I don't even know about guilt anymore. I don't feel guilt. I don't even know what guilt is. And that makes me very afraid because guilt was the last thing I had that said that there was something more than me. And the sociologist explains, he says, once you begin to say, you're it, this is it, there's there's no higher transcendent right or wrong, then there is no path. There is no meaning. There, suffering means nothing. Sacrifice means nothing. Only your pleasure means anything. And he says, that's the scariest place to be. See, ultimately, 
Ultimately, uh, you need a parent. You need a parent who has a path, who will say to you, that's the right way, that's the wrong way. And you need a parent who will trigger your guilt so that you can make changes. Not false guilt, not fake guilt, but who will trigger when you're gone astray and say, you need to get back to the path that I have for you. Even little children, they, they need to know what is right and wrong. They feel safer and more secure when the rules are secure in the house. When they have freedom within boundaries, a child is safe and secure. When a child has no boundaries and all freedom, the child is scared to death and insecure because they don't know what's right. They don't know what's wrong. The same is true of adults. And so you need a father who says, this is right, this is wrong. It helps you to know how to make adjustments along the way. All you have to do to see this loss of even the sense of guilt in our society or even the idea of something being evil, all you have to do is watch what happens when newspapers report on terrible crimes. They immediately go and ask the parents, what did you do wrong? You know, it's, they, they investigate. What, what are the causes of this evil that has taken place? Because, because it can't just be evil. It has to be because they, maybe they were, weren't breastfed. They were bottle fed, you know. They, they, they used the rod, and they didn't give timeouts, you know, and, and all of this kind of stuff. And suddenly you're standing there going, no one has responsibility for anything about what they do. You know, here's what this is saying, though, that you can go that way, but even the secular uh, experts are looking and saying, but when you go that way, you still feel sinful. You still feel like in your conscience someone is going to uncover that you're a fraud. See, one of, the, one of the biggest fears that most people have is this simply this. If you knew who I really was, you would not love me. And so we hide behind masks and we try to deal with things. So what God has done is he has offered a solution that is very powerful, but it's a solution that only comes through the blood. Blood is not only a negative thing, but blood is a positive thing. Blood is the very sign of life. There is no life without the blood. You know, babies are born through the shedding of blood, but not the baby's blood, the mom's blood. And so there's this beautiful imagery in birth in, in you coming into the world that somebody voluntarily shed their blood so that you could live. And in doing so, and it's why many, particularly many moms, feel so powerful about that very instance of, of giving life, of having sacrifice for the life of another, because there is in that giving and shedding of blood, there's redemptive power. And it's not the power of self-actualization, it's the power of self-giving. I mean, it's a fascinating thing that really anything that really, really will mean anything to you in this life will not be so much of what other people do for you, but you having something to do for others is what begins to make you feel alive. Well, blood is a, is, is a powerful thing. Sacrifice is a powerful thing. And since it's Memorial Day and we talk about the sacrifice of those 
who gave their lives for this country. One of the stories that, that impressed me and touched me was a story from 1942. There was a group of Scottish soldiers called the Argyle Regiment who were captured by the Japanese in Singapore, and they were put into POW camps. And in these camps, they were the, the treatment was very, very cruel, and there was forced labor, and there was a lot of beatings and punishment and deprivation. And this group of soldiers began to turn on each other, and they began to cheat each other and lie to each other and steal from each other because what became foremost in their minds is, how will I survive? I don't care what happens to you. I just want to survive. And so they would do anything they could in order to survive until one day. And on this day, while they were, they were building this bridge and they were they were uh, incredible deprivation to build this bridge, punishment if they didn't follow through on the, the time schedules and all kind of things. While they were, they were building this bridge, a count was made of how many shovels had been brought back from the work. And when the count was made, a shovel was missing. Now, shovels were significant because a shovel could dig you, your way out in an escape, or a shovel could become a weapon by which you could kill a guard. And so it was a very serious issue. And so the, the guard lined up all of these soldiers in a line. And he took his gun and he said, who took the shovel? And he had it ready. He cocked, you know, he cocked, got it ready and began to, was going to shoot the first guy, the second guy, the third guy and keep shooting them until all of them were dead. And this one soldier stepped out of line and said, I took the shovel. And the guard went to him and took his gun and just just pummeled him in the face with the gun, and his blood was gushing down his face. This soldier stood at attention, completely you know, composed before the guard, made the guard even more angry. He took the butt of his rifle and began to just pummel the guy's head, fell to the ground. He continued to do it until he was completely um, you know, obliterated, basically. The other POWs looked on with horror. They took their, their fallen comrade and they took him back to the barracks. Um, they did one more count of the shovels and no shovel was missing. It had been a miscount. This man, though, decided that he would sacrifice his life for the life of his fellow soldiers. If he had not done so, because no one would have been able to confess to something they had not done, if he had not done so, every single one of them would have died. His blood sacrificed for the lives of his regiment. These men told this story over and over again. Everything began to change in the way they behaved, in the way they treated one another, in the way that they began to stand and, and hold together. And it was such a, it's such a fascinating, powerful story that when they, were, when they were rescued, these men were emaciated. They had no, fat, you know, no muscle left on their bodies. They were, they were near starvation. And when they were rescued, the guards were lined up. And at that moment, they could have taken the life of every one of those guards who had mistreated them. And because of the blood of their fallen comrade, every soldier to a man forgave the guards who had so persecuted them. And kill, you know, and attempted to kill them and destroy them. See, there's power in blood. There's power 
and sacrifice like nothing else. Are you tracking with me this morning? Some people say to me sometimes, and I understand what they do. It's like, okay, this whole thing of sacrifice and blood, it sounds like, you know, it sounds like Greek mythology. It sounds like, you know, it sounds a lot like, uh, you know, Old Testament vengeance or all of these kind of things. We are modern people. We, we don't really need this, this old story. And I, I, I know I've lived with the Bible my whole life, but I just don't find anything more beautiful than this. I know I'm a sinner. Don't you? I mean, I have secrets that are shameful. I have tendencies. I have weaknesses. I mean, even sometimes when I most want to do what's right, I do what is wrong. And yet here, the one who knows every one of those secrets, the one who knows all of my shame, did not ask me to pay for my sins. He chose to pay for me. See, the, the difference in this sacrifice and every other sacrifice I've ever heard of is that the God who is offended always asks for the party who offended him or her to pay a costly price. When I was a student in, uh, in uh, college, I studied classical Greek and New Testament Greek. And in the morning, I was translating the Iliad. And there was a story of King Ag- Agamemnon, and he had angered this goddess. And she would not let him have success. And so he had to take, first in one story, he had to take a hundred cattle just to make her happy again. And then he messed up again. And, he's, and this time the goddess says, give me your daughter. And he has to sacrifice his daughter in order to have the victory uh, for the Greeks. That day I read Romans 3 in New Testament Greek. And there's this word, it's called the mercy seat. It's that very place on the, on the Ark of the Covenant where the blood was sprinkled. It's, in Greek, it's called hilasterion. It's, uh, it's called the propitiation or the place of atonement. Or, so it's this idea of satisfying the anger or the justice of God. And in that passage, so in contrast to what I read in the Iliad, in that passage it said, the very offended God himself became the sacrifice. See, he loved you so much. He knew how sinful you are. He knew your guilt. He knew your shame. Nothing is hidden from him. He knew it, and he still said, I will be the one who pays the price. Now, Diedrich Bonhoeffer has this teaching on forgiveness, and he says, all forgiveness is suffering. You know, that, that's a fascinating thing I've learned after many years. I watch people who say, oh, I forgive them, but they, they haven't forgiven because they won't suffer the pain. They won't suffer what the person has done to them. So they're just, they're just suppressing it. And you know what they do when they say, I forgive them, but let me just tell you what an awful rotten person they are. And let me just tell you how badly they treated me and how awful and how you should never trust them. And you realize that person never has forgiven because they never suffered. See, when someone wounds you, either the person who wounded you pays or you can forgive. But either way, when you are wounded, a debt has been incurred. If you choose, however, to make the one that wounded you pay, you become intricately involved with the very evil that they did. It becomes a part of you. 
But when you forgive, the evil done to you passes through you and does not become a part of you. It's an awesome thing when you think about it. When you, when you stay hooked to the wound and hooked to the wounder, you become as evil as the wounder. And what will happen is without you even know it, you'll start doing the same thing to other people because the evil attaches to you. But when you forgive and you suffer what it takes to forgive the wounds, the evil cannot attach itself to you. Do you remember what Jesus said when the thorns were on in his head, when the nails were in his hands? Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. The evil being done to him was not absorbed by him. But the pain and the violence being done to him was actually done so that it would not be absorbed by you. See, when you get this sacrifice and you recognize he did this for me and he's dealing with a real problem. One pastor told this story. I thought it was interesting. He said, if somebody's walking along a train track with you, a friend, let's say a friend's walking along a train track, and all of a sudden a train's coming, and they look at you and they say, I just want to show you how much I love you, and they jump in front of the train, and the train kills them. You're sitting there going, that wasn't what I was asking. That doesn't show you love me. That shows there's a screw loose. But if, you know, and I grew up with all those kind of things of train rescues when I was a kid and, you know, whether it's Dudley Do-Right or whoever it might have been, you know, and the damsel is tied to the train or you see somebody and their foot's caught in the train track or whatever it is and the friend at the risk of their own life comes and saves from the train or Jesus, not just at the risk, but at the cost of his own life took the train of death and absorbed it for you so that you would never be subject to it again. There's power in the blood. There's power in the blood. One more story. Can you stay with me? (laughs) That'll be on live stream. In 1955, um, Billy Graham announced or in some way was invited to come and speak at Cambridge. And not unlike today where when people that universities disagree with are coming, a a sort of riot came out. It's probably more a 1955 riot than a 2017 one. But but, uh, there was still, there was anger, there was disbelief. They didn't want him to come whatsoever. And it, it rattled Billy Graham, if you can imagine Billy Graham ever being rattled. But it rattled Billy Graham. And he thought, I've got to have the best message. I've got to have the greatest intellectual argument. I've got to do all these things. And so he came, and he was going to do eight, I believe it was eight nights. 8,000 students and professors showed up. One of the eyewitnesses was sitting next to the the dean of the college or the chancellor and one of the the top faculty members sitting between them. And they're... You know, and they're all there. They're, they're disapproving of Billy Graham. They're angry with his message, stuff. But at the end of the night, the first three nights, with his best messages that he could come up with, no one responded. 
nothing happened. Now, if you've ever been to a Billy Graham crusade, when the invitation is given, even if you're already a Christian, you want to go. I mean, it's just that powerful. It just draws you. You know, you want to come just as I am in the 33 verses that it has and all that kind of thing, and nothing happened. And it was said that Billy was upset by that, and then he, then he had a word, I think, from the Lord. They don't say it this way, but my interpretation is the Lord spoke to him and said, Billy, preach the blood. Preach the blood. And the eyewitness has said that from Genesis to Revelation, Billy Graham preached the blood, the necessity of sacrifice, that there, there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And he preached it from Genesis to Revelation. At the end of the night, this guy sitting between these two intellectual giants, they're both fuming and they're angry and they're saying that message has no place here. But when Billy Graham gave the call, 400 students came forward and gave their lives to Christ. You see, there's power in the blood in every generation. Because what you need is not just a society that tells you nothing should make you feel guilty. You need someone who takes the guilt away. You don't need a society that says, it's okay. You don't have to feel shame. Be who you are. Do whatever you want to do. And you're sitting there going, what does that even mean? When you have a God who says, I love you just as you are. It's okay you're not okay, but it's not okay to stay there. I love you with an everlasting love. I love the heart of the gospel in the sacrifice of Jesus. You are so sinful, friends. You are so shameful. You are so guilty that he had to die for you, but you are so loved that he chose to die for you. Who would do that for us? Only Jesus. Knowing you like he knows you, he loves you like no other. There's nothing you can do that disappoints an all-knowing God. And some of you think, oh, he's so angry, I can't draw near to him. No, all the anger was exhausted in Jesus the sacrifice. And so the invitation comes, draw near to me. Draw near to me. And the beauty is that the blood sprinkles your conscience and purifies it so that you can draw near. Will you stand with me? And even to draw near, it says, with confidence in your greatest hours of need. Would you do something? Maybe it's unusual, but would you just lift both your hands to the Lord? In the left hand, would you lift up your guilt? Maybe you've done this before, but just, just as a, an act of faith, you say, Lord, here's my guilt. And then in your right hand, lift up your shame. In your left hand, it's what I've done and sometimes what I haven't done that I should have done. But in your right hand, it's this great fear that somebody's going to find out you're a fraud or the fear you're gonna, they're going to expose that you're not fit. And you're lifting that up today and you're saying, Lord, you've taken both of these to the cross. Now I let go of them. I give them. I want you to say this with me. You may be trying it out for the first time. That's okay. Would you say this with me? I believe, I believe that, your sacrifice, that your sacrifice, that the shedding of your blood, the of your blood 
has qualified me to draw near to God. I will not listen to any lies, accusations, or any challenge to my fitness to draw near. Jesus is worthy. Jesus is fit. I am in Him. He nailed my guilt to the cross. And He took my shame in His body. And I will hold on to these no more. Let the Lord just, let the Lord work with you in that. Somebody might say to you, oh, you're not fit to be with God. They don't get to say that. Because God has made you fit. I love that. Other people, they can say, I don't like his behavior. I don't like how he talks. I don't like how he does this. And I'm like, that's their bad conscience trying to assuage itself by comparing themselves to me. But my God, who is holy, who is righteous, who is perfect, has said, draw near. Am I going to listen to the shouts or the invitation? I choose to draw near. Would you do that today? Would you choose to draw near? I guarantee you this. You will not be able to go through this life without drawing near. There is happiness in the Lord. There is joy. There is peace. There is patience. There is kindness. There is goodness. And there is love. Lord, we seal what you're doing today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being here with us today. We'll see you next week. We have some people who will pray with you up at the front if there's anything you'd like to pray about. Storm.